Rudolf Steiner introduced a movement called anthroposophy, which is a little mouthful, a little tongue twister, but it really is about what is universally human. It isn't of the essence of anything sectarian, but really is concerned with about those things that are universally human. As I was saying last night, it's not often we see impulses that are actually fully human. We tend to think that we have arrived and we're fully human beings, but as I begin to understand it, the human being has hardly yet arrived. That we are only human now and again. That instead of using the word, oh well it's only human, meaning something lower, I'm using it in the opposite sense in which it was originally intended, a little lower than the angels, made in a particular image, this being who is really not yet arrived. And how often we find programs such as animal, vegetable, mineral. And where's the human being? He is just an animal. Or the reductionist approach that even goes further and begins to describe the behavior of man as a result of genetic, environmental or other material factors. And there's no doubt that these factors play an important part in human behavior. But they're only the mineral, plant or animal part. They're not those elements which are distinctively human. So it's right that we should begin to think, perhaps particularly at the moment when we begin to approach Christmas, the whole picture of man awakening. And the picture begins with the realization that he hasn't arrived yet. And if we think of our own reactions, then by the very word we are speaking of animal-like behavior. As Pavlov said when he was really uh, opposing the idea of Shakespeare, Shakespeare said in Hamlet about man, how noble is this creature, uh, how articulate, how agile, how like a god. And Pavlov said, ah, how like a dog, the reversal of the word god, how like a dog. And what an advance this is, he says, because now we can study animal behavior and understand uh, the nature of man. So we have lost in this particular age a clear picture of the being of man. We no longer fully understand the nature of man. And whereas perhaps some centuries ago you might have been coming to a hall to hear uh, somebody speak about the nature of God, now the reality is the discovery of the nature of man. Well, Christmas embraces a birth. It's about a beginning. Traditionally, it's the birth of a child. If you go back to the early uh, church, the early Christian celebration of the birth of Christ, you don't come to the 25th of December, you come to the 6th of January. For 400 years, the birth of Christ is celebrated at the Epiphany, the baptism the coming of Christ into the man Jesus of Nazareth who dwelt there for three years this was celebrated by the early Christians as the mass of Christ the Christ mass the God who became man and only later after about the fourth century did this change and I'll return to this theme probably towards the end of the talk. But at the end of this fourth century, understanding of this mystery began to offer, to falter. And they decided to celebrate instead the birth of Jesus on the 25th of December. Now that's an interesting date in itself. You have a date just following the shortest day in winter, when the sun is at its lowest. When in the old tribes of Europe, great choir festivals were held. 
to awaken, to call back the light that was seen to depart. And on the 24th and the 25th, they began to see that this deep darkness was beginning to lift. So they celebrated the beginning of the return of the light. It was related to the old sun misting. And another interesting indication that Rudolf Steiner points to is that in some of the Germanic tribes that lived in Europe about the time of elk and bison, when heavy snow lay on the ground in winter, they really lived under the leadership of a group of people whom today you might call the priests, though that is a rather formal ecclesiastical term for these people. They were the people who had insight into the rhythms of nature, insight into the uh, way in which one could understand the course of the year. And these leaders of the tribes in Germany, or that area that now is roundabout between Germany and Denmark, and this is recorded historically by Tacitus, I believe, they, in fact, arranged that roundabout the few days following the, the spring equinox, the time that we now celebrate as Easter, about that time, it was forbidden to carry any weapons of war. It was necessary that peace should prevail for that time. And then it was decreed that that was the right time that procreation should occur. And then as the months passed, then as the snow and the wintry weathers came, huddled together, surviving the winter in their small huts, they would wait for the child that would be born after the deepest night in winter, after the 24th of December, midnight. They would wait for the first child that would be born. And that child was then marked as the one who, when he was 30, would become the leader of the tribe for three years. Many thousands of years before Christianity came to earth. This is what was the practice in this Germanic tribe. And we can begin to see that Christianity somehow in its origins and its further development linked most closely with what has gone before. It cannot be seen as something different but a further step in the same process. And so I want this evening to start with the simple human image of the mother and child, this archetypal human experience, the mother-child. And I've used a rather grotesque picture sometimes just to make it come alive for people. When a child is born, do we think in modern, uh, in a modern way, well, this is a lump of genetic material that we can now mould into a bus conductor or a bank clerk or an engineer or a doctor. It's grotesque because the very thought and the way it's presented seems out of tune with the experience of any parent who witnesses this event. And the experience is much more like creating a space for this being, this sense of natural evocation of wonder in the presence of this new formed human life, this new incarnation. And really the great question that is asked is, I wonder what he or she will become. There's a real sense that this being has brought something with them beyond the genetic coding or the environmental conditions, but something of its own being. And the parents feel they want to create a space for this being to find its progress, its future, its destiny, and slowly that this will be revealed through its life. Not matter to be conditioned, molded, but a being for whom a space has to be created 
to enable it to come to fruition. And this, I believe, is the most natural, deep human experience at the very beginning of human life. So we already in our feeling experiences become very much awake that there is more there than mere matter. And strange how in this age, which is probably the age where in terms of values about life, in terms of the meaning and significance of life, we have least insight. We are most uncertain. We're an age of great inner uncertainty. Victor Frankl, a psychotherapist, describes how the most common neurosis these days, which is growing enormously, and this is some 30 years ago, and it's grown even more since, is loss of meaning. Loss of meaning. But he says, this is not an illness to be cured, but the surest sign of being human. To be human is to search for meaning and significance. And if we ask ourselves, how is it that it has arisen that, in, that we uh, have such great uncertainty about meaning, then we need only turn to the way in which, over the last few hundred years, the whole effort of man's spiritual nature in thinking, in knowing, has turned towards matter. Following the dictum of Descartes, who said that the right use of science, of knowledge, is to apply to those things that have the certainty of mathematics, of geometry, of algebra. What certainty is there about human behavior? Very little. What about the certainty of a tiger you might meet in Africa? Well, I don't think you'd bank on what's going to happen. What about the certainty you find in the plant world that seems to vary in its production according to the vagaries of the weather, the wind, and so on? What is the most certain? The mineral realm. There we can have greatest certainty. And so our attention is really focused almost exclusively upon the mineral realm. And we have understood it, mastered it, manipulated it, so the whole development of technology could take place. And this is a wonderful contribution that man has developed. His technology, his ability to manipulate matter. But in the end, with all this great means at his disposal, he seems to have lost the end. He's got great means, great know-how, but he's lost the know-why. And this is the cause, if you like, of the greatest uncertainty in which we live. We have become a generalization to believe in matter and it has led us to the dry, empty bones of life, where life becomes meaningless. And then it's interesting really to realize that Thomas Aquinas describes a different use of thinking, of knowing, of science. He says that the splendorous knowledge of higher things is more desirable than the most certain knowledge of lesser things. The most certain knowledge of lesser things. The splendorous knowledge of the highest is more desirable. Because this splendor knowledge of the highest holds the beginning of true wisdom, of true insight into meaning, significance, purpose, and so on. And it's certainly no accident that Rudolf Steiner, one of his basic books, is called Knowledge of Higher Worlds and Its Attainment. Knowledge of Higher Worlds and Its Attainment. And some people buy this book and they come back to and say, oh yes, I've, I've read it, yes. Well, I understood bits of it. It's a manual of self-development that most people will take lifetimes to master. But you see, we've got used today to absorbing information, as though that is what knowledge is about, about knowing, whether knowing is about information. 
where the wisdom comes from getting information. We've not realized that life is about a journey. It's a journey that today, we the attitude of a journey, well, we get in an aeroplane and we fly off to some exotic path, maybe the Himalayas or somewhere, and we arrive in pristine condition, exactly as we left. If we don't, we would probably get over the travel agent and complain. But you see, if you imagine somebody like Livingstone, when he really discovered the heart of Africa, by the time he got there, he was a changed man. He'd learned the language of the natives. He had actually been in terrible danger. He developed deep relationships with the team and people he'd worked with. He was a person that at the end of his journey, he was changed. And the intention is at the end of our life that we should have been changed. We should arise transformed. For God's sake, don't arise and say, well, here I am. I've got my best suit on. Uh, it's all nice and clean and I haven't got it mucked up just as I started off, I've kept out of trouble. Isn't that good? It's a simple picture. It's a story of the talent. person who was worried and just buried his talent and kept it and at the end, there it was. And consequently, he lost even that talent. Because life is about growth. It's about development. It's about change. It's about transformation. It's about metamorphosis. One sees the picture of the caterpillar and the transformation that it goes through into the chrysalis, into this magnificent butterfly. There are deep human treasures to be discovered on this journey. A richness that people are hardly aware of. A great human El Dorado, almost undiscovered. And like all treasure, you have to find a map, you have to undertake a journey, and then you will discover this treasure. And before we speak a little about that journey, perhaps we ought just to refresh our picture of the human being, and wake up to the fact that it's quite difficult in our modern world to wake up to the fact that we live in two worlds the visible world about which we can all agree and that so many people believe is the only real world and an invisible world and that life is really the drama between these two worlds the visible and the invisible what are you hearing at the moment? what pictures are moving within you at the moment? none of us can see them with the eyes because they're invisible. We hold these pictures, these thoughts, these feelings within as reality. When will we wake up and realize that the whole nature of experience is an interior transformation? When outer happenings come through the sense organs and then transform into what we call experience a word we throw away like a piece of newspaper without realizing that experience is something that can only happen to a soul or spirit being experience isn't something a stone has it's much more interior we almost overlook the greatness of ordinary, everyday human experience. As though we've been brainwashed not to perceive what kind of being a human being is. My wife often reminds me of this little chap who was sitting on the bus with his mother and said to his mother, Mummy, what's that man for? What's that man for? What are you for? Some of these naive questions. What are you for? What is life for? These basic inner questions that we really like to creep around and not face in present day uh, attitudes. And we've got to wake up to the fact that 
perhaps we should start looking at the world and re-educate ourselves. Let's pretend we've uh, never been to school or we've been uh, wrongly educated, as I begin to see we have been, all of us, myself, certainly. And we have to begin to wake up and work with these small things like wonder, which are really great We have to wake up and look around at nature and let it speak to us. And one can easily do that. We go out, most of us, and do a bit of gardening. And we watch this magical process of the seed transforming mere matter through countless forms into flowers, fruits, scents, and so on. And we can just observe and say, well, how is it that it can do this magical uh, process? How is it that it comes about? And the answer is, none of us know. We don't know, really, about the life element within the plant. We know about the material element in the plant, its genetic composition. But the actual power, energy, through which it uses the forces of the sun, the air, the light, the moisture and the earth, and transforms and organizes these, develops these delicate petals, as a friend of mine used to say, you imagine if you were dropping from a plane in a parachute, how carefully you'd fold up those, that great silk parachute or whatever it is. And you imagine these plants whose petals are as delicate as a parachute, and yet they're all folded up from the inside. Just incredible. They're folded up from the inside, and yet they're able to open fully. I often think too of the color of the flower, and how, if you're really an artist, how difficult it is to get the delicacy of colors, and what processes chemically have to be gone through in order to produce these colors. This little tiny black seed is able to do this perfectly, without any, as it were, complex outer chemical apparatus. And once you go through the whole process of the plant, if you only wake up in observation to what is happening there, then we're surrounded by miracles. And then once it comes to the animal, the animal, it not only has this physical body and this living uh, body, but also has sensation. You tread on a blade of grass, you're not really, unless you're very uh, unusual, going to apologize for it. But if you tread on the tail of a cat, you, you soon know that something has been experienced. A creature has uttered a sound, and that sound isn't just vibrations in the air, you hear pain you hear um, pleasure. You already are in the realm of a deeper inner experience. A deeper inner experience that the stones, in a sense, don't have. Here is a being that takes sensations from the outside and through the nervous system, takes it to the inside. And there, the magic of the outer happening becomes experience. Soul experience. They're called anima. Food. The word anima is soul, they're in soul creatures. Then we come to the human kingdom, and what's significant about the human kingdom? He has this strange capacity we've been all using this, this evening to be able to reflect and develop inward pictures at will. This capacity that we sometimes call thinking, but it's so much more than that word ordinarily um, evokes in us. We have the capacity to reflect. To, be, to roam inwardly in the past and in the future and, in, and live in the present and to draw outer experiences in relation to inner experiences of soul, of feeling, and so on. Uh, and we're able to translate these experiences and begin to pour them back out into the world and create things that didn't exist in the world. This is a mark of a spiritual being. Someone who can look at himself that's a strange characteristic that we have a self that can look at itself. It's one of these simple, par profound paradoxes. And we just don't pay attention to this phenomena, this fantastic phenomena of the being who can look at himself and can look at his inside in the sense that he can look at his thoughts and feelings. He can marshal them, change them, order them and he can apply them to his own being and alter his being 
if I had enough tenacity, I might have been become a pianist, develop capacities that I didn't start off with. And I can really generate within myself capacities that at first I don't have. What potential? What opportunity for growth? How we can change ourselves. And whereas up to now evolution in the sense you might say for the animal is a law, for the human being is a duty. It's your duty to evolve. But nature and nobody else will do it for you. And this is a transition when man has come of age where unless he takes his conscious step, his development ceases. Well, you might say, whatever's going on tonight, where is it going on? Not out here, not up here, but somehow in an invisible realm in which to a certain extent I hope we are all participating, an invisible space, you might say. It's as though we're living in a space that we, for a moment, um, give over to these thoughts and feelings. And if we wake up to what that means, that you are actually opening <coughs> these are words that are spatial words but they're not really meant spatially you're opening something of yourself of your perceptions that don't come through your eyes your ears hear the sound and take them spiraling in to the center of the head and you then begin to think what is this that trying to get at all sorts of senses begin to awaken what is this about? What pictures do they evoke in me? What, what responses occur in me that concur or oppose? A whole dynamic activity, an interior arena, an interior space in which we uh, are all living. And this inner space is a natural experience that we have, that we live in this inner space. And we can, through our human faculties, pour out some of our interior being into the world. And I'd like to show some slides now, and this is only as a simple example. I was trying to work through this theme of this interior space, this picture of the child and the mother. And if ever you go to a modeling class in play, you always find somebody there doing a Madonna and child. If you look at the early church, you find that this is a theme that soon starts, not yet dear, to become um, an important theme, this mother-child figure. And if you go back before Christianity, of course, this is there strongly again. And when one thinks about it, you start to model it, and you model the child, one begins to say, what is the universal child that is coming, that is about to be born? What is it that each human being is nurturing that we're trying to give birth to every human being? What is it? And one begins to feel it's somewhere in this interior space, this interior world, a being is being born. And uh, I was modeling this Madonna figure, a whole series of them, and one went into a cubist model, but where the child was, a space began to be hollowed out in the half area and then it went right over into a, a form where I was trying to express what is the reality is the interior space you sit on I don't know whether you can see it with the light on you see now step aside An interesting thing is, if you think of a human being, how we are open to the world through our senses. Uh, within a certain sense I've described as a horizontal aperture, which really through the senses looks out, listens uh, into the world. And how do we get to know people? By looking through, in a sense, what they communicate, and through our senses through their own apertures into something of the inner being of the other person. So we see something of the inner space of the other person. And uh, if we then begin to uh, 
awaken to this inner space that we protect. We don't let people into our inner world, or only to a certain extent. We protect it very much in this Madonna-like uh, gesture. But besides being open uh, to the world in a horizontal fashion, but also open vertically. But the vertical opening is a spiral form. You follow it through, it spirals upwards. Just as the living etheric forces spiral into the human being. And what really, what faculties have we that are not really linear, like thinking and other similar faculties? Those faculties of imagination, of inspiration, of, of intuition, all things that spiral in from a vertical dimension. And I'm not using those spatially, really. We have to translate that into this inner world where spatial terms are not really meant to convey physically spatial impressions. Well, we go through these quickly because it will just give you a feeling of walking around this. And this side, you see, suddenly came about as I was modeling it, what is really man's passion? And slowly the form began to appear for me in matter, on the left-hand side, this form is nuzzling up, as it were, beginning to take on a flame-like form. But the big flame-like form is in the space. If you follow the inner space, you'll see a great flame-like form, unfinished, unfinished, but distinctly there, this flame of the spirit, which only becomes manifest because of the presence of matter. It only becomes manifest, visible, because of the presence of matter. The interior being of man is this inner space in which we have our real center. And this inner, this inner space begins to develop a form and without earthly life, it would not have developed this form. It would not have become manifest. It would be not, not have become visible. And therefore, earthly life is precious because only in this situation can we really make the spirit apparent. And being born has another archetypal experience, not only the mother-child, but it has this archetypal experience of separation. The mother becomes separate from the child. My daughter went to California for a year, and after she'd been there some time, she wrote back saying, now that she'd experienced American life, she began to see what important uh, characteristics there were about Great Britain. She said, it's funny, isn't it? You've got to separate from something to become aware of its qualities. You've got to separate from something to become aware. This is a most fundamental fact of consciousness. Separation is necessary for consciousness to arise. And the human experience has been the path of separation. You get the marvelous story that is a journey a journey which is a growing separation from that initiate Moses when he speaks about Adam and Eve and this fall, so-called. And how, because he has taken knowledge, he has essentially become separated from the world of spirit. The word sin originally meant thundering. Sin meant thundering. In that sense, it's not a bad thing. What I'm saying is, it was necessary that man was sundered from the spirit so that he might become a conscious, free individuality. But this has consequences. And just as today we admire an objective consciousness, you see, an objective consciousness, a detached consciousness, there are the things outside, separate from me, leave them detached out there, where my feelings don't come into play, I, my prejudices or my desires or my wishes and there's something very valuable in an objective consciousness don't let 
throw away what we've striven X thousand years to gain, even if we've lost something on the way. This is most valuable, it's objective consciousness. But this is a separation from things, a separation from things. And it's become so extreme that we say, ah, oh, yes, well, that's objective to see that chair out there, we can all agree. But these thoughts and feelings, oh, well, well, that's not real. That's just uh, sort of efflorescence of matter. In fact, I was talking to a scientist the other day about how objective one should be about one's inner experiences. He said to his wife, oh, uh, excuse me, dear, we're having a talk about mysticism. Or metaphysics. You see? And whilst he was right, what he's really meaning, we now had our feet right off the ground and it was all vague and woolly. Not realizing the very fabric of human experience. If we go back to this simple story of the the nature of the fall, the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, whole strange picture is portrayed there. Very strange. If only we wake up to it separation had to occur. And the price of this separation? Sexuality. Death. And what was it for? Knowledge. But these, in fact, are intimately bound up. The old way of talking of using the word knowledge was concerned with procreation. To read the Bible, then it uses the word knowledge to mean procreation, fructification. And if we begin to realize that self-knowledge, man know thyself, isn't an introverted brooding, but what is called for is nothing less than an inner fructification of the human being. And that one really wonders whether in present day life because we are unable to penetrate into the inner life of human beings. On a deep level we have so many surface contacts but no deep human relationship. They don't come so easily these days anyway. Then we begin to see that because we are unable to penetrate deeply and know another person inwardly, therefore we tend to use sexuality as a means of knowing. And in a sense, a symptom, you might say, of the permissive society. Deep down is related to the fact that human beings have not discovered the inwardness of knowing one another, of inner knowledge. This is how far our separation has gone. And this is the point where, if you use the story of the prodigal, the Bible's full of this story, of the chap who goes away into a far country and only when he eats, he eats the food of the swine, the husk, the driest element, the element most lacking in nutrition, only then in his state of desperation and uncertainty does he come to his self and he makes the journey back again. Only when he comes to eat of the husk in this great uncertainty does he get the impulse coming to himself to find the way back. And how do we nourish our inner being today? With the violence on television? What makes the news? The most sensational, disastrous, salacious, frightening, horrific element they are the most newsworthy items. And how many times a day do we take this poisonous medicine? Many times a day. And how many times do we take nourishment for the soul in a positive sense? One just asks the question and hopes that many people are able to give positive answers. How often do we take at least three times a day some positive, healing, meditative, inner activity. Are we undertaking this journey or are we just expecting life to lead us to the end 
without this trauma of changing ourselves? Are we afraid of changing? Do we always want to remain a caterpillar on this comfortable cabbage that we're all gobbling up rather rapidly? And there's that silly joke about two caterpillars sitting on a leaf and they saw this butterfly pass by and then they said, cool, you won't get me up in one of those things. And indeed, you look around and you think, when will human beings really wake up to their destiny? Are they avoiding their destiny because they feel inwardly it's too fantastic? It's beyond them. Ridiculous that man should become a spirit being made in the image of God. And so as we really, really wake up to this wonderful mystery statement, man know thyself and thou shalt know the universe and God, which need to be completed and develop thyself. That is the challenge of this age, not redemption, but development in the direction of being more human. This is really the aim and the destiny of man the purpose that you and I have to fulfill. This is the beginning of the Christmas experience, the awakening of man. But will we awaken? Will we awaken? So easier, so much easier to sleep, to be carried along, not to change. You know that marvelous statement by Christopher Fry when he says in his sleep of prisoners the frozen miseries of centuries break, cracks, begins to move the thunder is the thunder of the flows the thaw, the upstart spring thank God our time is now when wrong comes up to face us everywhere never to leave our side till man takes the longest stride of soul he ever took affairs are now soul sized the enterprise is exploration into God. Where are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wait. But will you wait for pity's sake? So often we say in ordinary life, I let myself down. Just dwell on that picture, I let myself down. What is this self that we let down? For heaven's sake, be yourself. We're calling on somebody to be a bit, a bit better than they appear to be behaving. This higher, wiser self, all the questions that you really hold, if you really hold, if you bear them within you, year after year, asking those inner questions, you will find the answers don't come from outside. They come from inside. They come from this inner self, this wisdom that lies buried, this El Dorado that we don't even acknowledge exists and therefore don't go on the journey to find it. This great human wealth that is there as yet untapped. And how did he get there? One feels that like the pearl, it comes there through suffering. This magnificent pearl that really is created out of what appears at first to be just irritation and suffering. And because time's passing, I have to move on to bring the theme, as it were, round to the beginning, if we begin to think of this self, who, what is this wiser self within me? Can we really feel this I am within me? The way, the truth, and the life of the I am. If we come back to modern times, there's a most amazing phenomena that people may know about with the hologram. 
if you shine certain sorts of, of light, laser light, onto a photographic plate, you can take a photograph of the interference energy, and then when illuminated by uh, this light subsequently, you have a perfect picture taken, but it's three-dimensional. So that if you move your head about, you can sort of see around it and over it and behind it, and it gives all the impression of actually being there. It's so, um, it, it's so, uh, it gives the impression of so much reality that, that you, you couldn't distinguish it from not being there, other than the fact that beams are light, but also perfect. And the curious phenomenon about this is that on that photographic plate that bears an image in three-dimensional form, that if it's smashed into smithereens, every tiny fragment there's a copy of the whole. This to me I find intriguing. Every fragment has a copy of the whole, but is a little less coherent. And I wanted to develop that image because if you think of this ancient myth of Osiris, of this sun god, the god of light, whom the Egyptians believed was dismembered by his opponents, torn apart, and a fragment of Osiris, this sun god, was really buried throughout the earth. Where was it buried? It was buried in human bodies. Human bodies are the graves of Osiris. And all those pieces are really are the dismembered portions of this sun god. And Isis seeks to unite these parts together so that Osiris might again reign as the sun god. And the ancient Egyptians, when did they remember Osiris? on the 6th of January. That's when they held their festival to remember Osiris. And then we begin to think of this God that entered into human earthly life at the baptism. And when did the early Christians celebrate this incarnation on the 6th of January? And then we find the early Christians point to the human beings now not as the grave of Osiris but as the body of this sun god. Curious, these interrelated themes that run throughout history. This being that was the light of the world, this portion of the light that lives in you and I, this light of the higher self. Mostly, the egotistical self shows itself only too readily. It casts its shadow on so much that we do. But this light of the higher self casts no shadow. Just as the warmth of our ordinary human emotions often burn people, but the warmth of this inner being. This is a warmth that awakens. It works through things like wonder. It works through things like reverence. Qualities, Rudolf Steiner says, uh, there is a power within the soul through which we attract qualities in the beings around us which otherwise remain concealed. There's a whole lifetime of meditational work on that one phrase that reverence is a power within the soul through which we attract qualities in the beings around us which otherwise remain concealed. This is a sun force. It's a force that draws out from other beings living activity. People feel more themselves in the presence of a person who is able to hold reverence. It's not an ecclesiastical churchy thing, but the deepest human experience. Wonder, reverence, other capacities such as conscience, compassion, these go beyond the senses. How often do we experience them? Well, now and again, we manage to become human now and again. We've got to do a lot of work on it to really sustain throughout a lifetime our human 
inner nature to become human beings. And so we really have to wake up to this great challenge, this challenge that perhaps Christmas reminds us of. This business of this journey through life isn't just that we could arrive back the same as we left. It isn't that man has come down from the spiritual world and needs to go back there the same way. He's got to go forward to a new future. And this is why this point in age is the upturn, the upsurge, the direction upward, the new renaissance, where we can't go back. We can't use the old practices. We have to go forward. It's an apocalyptic age. We have to go through materialism to a new future. We cannot go back. There's no place to go but ahead. And for this we need the deepest faith. Faith in our authentic spiritual experience. And therefore we must pay attention to these spiritual experiences that we all have, every one of you. We think that revelation is the sort of thing that Moses, the prophets, and great individuals have. You have revelation. Every act of inner knowing is a waking up to things that were hidden. Things that were once veiled become unveiled. And the actual human experience of knowing is not adding a bit of information to a, to a computer or putting a jigsaw to finish off the picture. Inner human knowing involves the whole human being. It's as much intuitive as it is anything else. It's as much out of the realms of imagination and inspiration as anything else. It is of the nature of illumination, of revelation. So don't denigrate your own revelation. But you have to put it in its right place and nurture it and care for it and perceive other people's growing revelation. Human faculties are awaking during earthly life. Human faculties which didn't exist in the cosmos. This great journey into life is not just simply to go back and say what strange countries we've been in but to develop something new upon the earth. And it's perhaps too long uh, a topic to lead into what that is, but that's something that you already know in your hearts. That we look forward really to the Christmas of mankind. The divine self, in essence, like the sun and radiant with light, will prevail over the darkness and will give to the soul a peace by which all the strife all the war, all the discord in the world will be quelled. Will you wait for pity's sake? In darkness dwelling, create a sun. In matter weaving, know the joy of spirit. 